Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal partner, Mike Walker. How you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. I'm very glad to hear that. We would like to announce, we've been doing this for almost a year now, we'd like to now announce that we're ready for new and better things. And, and with that, I'd like to formally represent to the world that we are now ready to be considered as associate justices to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. Now, granted, neither of us are lawyers, uh, neither of us are American citizens, but these aren't actually legal requirements, so there's nothing actually formally barring either of us from being nominated. I think I would be a better jurist personally uh, than Walker would be. Uh, but Walker might have different views on the matter. And, you know, substantive discussion and spirited debate is really what's at the core of what we're doing here. So I think it would be a natural extension of what we're doing. Our broadcast schedule would would continue uninterrupted during all this time, of course. Uh, I don't know what games the other justices would like to play, but I'm sure we'll, we'll expand their horizons. And uh, I can only imagine that this will do wonders for both the Republic and the Dominion. So keep that in mind, whoever's in charge. I'm not touching this. Not touching it at all. <laughs> See, Walker's already for the confirmation hearings in that he is unwilling to comment on substantive matters of law. How do you feel about Dred Scott, Walker? You think that was properly decided or improperly decided? No comment. Excellent, excellent call. Anyway, so we're going to talk about board games this week, and just to mix it up, we're going to start by talking about games we played last week. We're then going to proceed to the news and why it doesn't matter. We're then going to move on to our feature game, which is Gaslands this week. And then finally, we are going to close off with our topic, and this week's topic is the perils of collecting. So with that in mind, let us begin with the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? What have I listed? I finally got you to play Mystic Veil. It's true. Mystic Veil is a card crafting game, and that's what the actual game is, is crafting the cards. There's no real other substance to it other than buying your cards and trying to create combos, and and it's a great AEG game. I tend to like it, but like I said, it's suffering from a little bit of bloat. What do you think, Mark? I was sincerely hoping that the push-your-luck aspect was going to be a little bit more prevalent or or there would actually be more genuine choices about what to do. But as you say, it really is just a question of deciding what to buy. And that's fine as far as deck builders go. I think I've commented in the past that if a game is going to be that stripped down and if it's just going to be one of those deck builders where the 
only thing you decide is what to buy. I'd rather it be a little bit more stripped down. Mystic Veil, you spend a fair amount of time uh, setting up and tearing down for a game of its ilk because although the whole card crafting thing is very, very, very clever and the components are produced very well, uh, it does rather complicate things, especially from a teardown perspective. And I also have to say, and this is a very, very minor gripe, it's very difficult to see the cards in the middle of the table. So when you're considering what to buy, you have to really just lean over because uh, for those that haven't played Mystic Veil, everything is basically on the top or the middle or the bottom of a card. And the cards are oversized, but as a result, every card effect is just a third of a card, which then has most of it consisting of artwork and then the effects being elsewhere. And heaven forfend, there's text. If there's text, it's going to be very small. I'm usually not one to complain about usability issues like that, but I did find it quite striking. And so all told for a game of that lightness, uh, I'd rather it be a little bit more you know, cheap and cheerful and a little bit more uh, uh, fast. So I'd situate it squarely in the realm of... Uh, well, no pun intended, of the Realms-type games, of the Star Realms, the Hero Realms, etc., uh, etc., et or of uh, Shards of Infinity. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't have anything against Mystic Veil. It, it's it's kind of cute. But I, I, I think that there was potential in the system for making the push-your-luck matter more, maybe making the card play a little bit more substantial. Uh, so, at the end of the day, I felt that it was fine, but that it could have been something interesting. Yeah, I'm interested to see where it goes. Like, not Mystic Veil itself, but where, else, where they push this sort of card crafting system and on the thing of, of, of being able to see the cards and not only they're, they're not even the actual real cards they're the translucent so on top of it being small and a third of a card and they're also now this you know this glare and the fact that it's been printed on this translucent plastic makes it that much harder to see yeah and i'm not sure if this is the fault of the fact that i played it for the first time with several expansions included but in mystic veil vale, you're expected to make purchasing decisions and in theory again this would have been one of the aspects in which Mr. Vale could have been slightly more interesting based on what else is going to go on the same card. As it said, every card you buy is a top, a middle, or a low. And there was the potential in some of the cards you buy for some interaction about one affecting the other. But the problem is, at the outset of the game, you don't know what's going to come out of the random market. So at the very, very beginning of the game, for example, there was a, a an effect there that said, well, if this is grafted onto a card with the following features, you will get some points at the end of the game. And even when it came out, I thought, well, I don't know what's going to come up. Who knows? And so I, I basically ignored that effect because it was just too much of a shot in the dark. So again, I, I feel that there's potential here and I've kind of, you know, the whole card crafting thing is cute and visually pleasing. And we commented about that in Custom Heroes, which is the other one. There's the more substantive Edge of Darkness that's supposed to be coming out later. And I'm vaguely curious to give that a try, but I'm not terribly optimistic. So far, I haven't really been impressed with the work of John D. Clare, but it's a great gimmick in search of a great game. Maybe sooner or later, they'll come up with it. So that was that was my take on Mystic Vale. Just a quick side note on Mystic Vale, you need two convergences, actually. Not only do you have to have the proper card come up when you need it to, but you also have to have the card that you want to put it on come up in your deck. So you have A, you have, yes. to, you have to hope that the card is still there that you want or that it's come up. And then B, you have to hope that, that the card you want to put it on is now in your play area. So it can be very frustrating, yeah. So the, so the high the high-cost cards that key off of other things, or that you have a specific idea about where it ought to go, you're right. You have to get the high currency hand at the same time as the card you want to add on to. You're right. It, it, it increases the variance, not in a good way. Again, a missed opportunity, I think. Yep. Agreed. 
What'd you play, Mark? So we've been playing a lot of Sentinels of the Multiverse now that we've given ourselves permission to play it again. And I've actually, I just wanted to make a quick note about the app version because I've commented in the past that I don't really like digital implementation of board games for a variety of reasons. And I think uh, one of one of my frustrations about Sentinels of the Multiverse is, is really come to a fine point by virtue of my playing the, the video game version a little bit more. Because in Sentinels of the Multiverse, you're very frequently tasked to do relatively tedious things like reveal X cards from the top of the deck, keeping of a certain type, shuffling the rest in, and figuring out which target has the highest hit points or the lowest hit points or what have you. And so I thought that the digital implementation was going to be a godsend because it would automate all of those things. But the problem is, and this is true of a lot of digital implementations, and I don't know if I'm alone in feeling this, in Sentinels of the Multiverse, very frequently there are tasks that in the physical version are trivial, but the video game version draws out considerably. For example, and this is a relatively common occurrence, say that you have something that's going to do one point of damage to all targets in play. First of all, in the physical implementation, you're going to have a whole bunch of hands helping you out, you know, just grabbing a hit point off a whole bunch of targets. But on top of that, very frequently there might be something like, this does one point of damage to everything in play, but it also has a modifier attached to it that means it does one less damage every time it does damage. And you put it on there precisely so you wouldn't get hit by this one damage every turn. Well, so in the physical version, you look at that and say, okay, so it does no damage and you move on. In the computer game version, what you get to do is watch laboriously as it keys up every target in sequence 12 times of it saying one damage minus one equals zero okay on to the next target one damage minus one equals zero on to the next one and when you have this happening time after time after time it really does make it feel as though the physical version might be faster in some instances and that's weird anyhow I still really, really, really like Sentinels of the Multiverse. I stand by every everything that I've said. I've just been using the digital version to try out some of the more esoteric or strange things that I wouldn't necessarily try in person. I find the digital version kind of frustrating, as I say. I have been able to get a, a game in when people aren't around, but I will say that the hopes that we expressed that the Oblivion mode, with all the cool bits, might be ultimately playable in the digital version, I'm less optimistic about that now, having tried the digital version. But who knows? Time will tell. Because I have the same grapes. It's like, yeah. I want to look at my hand while other people are taking their turns, and you can't really do that. You have you can click on your icon. And you have you to click bring, on meanwhile, yeah, and, then and, then you, and then you bring to... up your cards, and then when you come back, now you have to fast forward through everything that's gone on while you were looking at your cards, and... I, I, I'm on the same page. I just find the physical version way better. It's, well, n- it's nice when, you know, you can't get together or someone lives far away and you want to play a game. That's great. But in this particular instance, I don't have this great against all games like Scythe or these other uh, digital implementations. I enjoy all those because you can get games in fast. But this particular Sentinels uh, is a no-go. Part of it also is just, and this isn't a fault of the adaptation, this is just a fault of of the general structure. In Sentinels of the Multiverse, you're going to be playing multiple hands. I don't like playing multiple hands. I find it very... Uh, first of all, it breaks thematic immersion, but the moment you're playing a computer adaptation, that goes right out the window anyway. But I just, I have difficulty tracking the hands, as you say. You know, in many games of Sentinels of the Multiverse, you might have people with maybe as many as 10 cards in their hand, and you might trigger an effect on one person that says, discard a card, and then you're like, okay, well, I get to leave this hand and go to this hand and remind yourself about all the cards, do, etc., etc. 
I find it, honestly, I find it mentally draining. And despite the fact that there are very few choices to be made in a game of Sentinels, I would rather just be able to play my character, get to appreciate the art, get to read the flavor flavor text while other people are taking their turn, help out with a little bit of manipulation so that many hands make, make light work, all that. I really feel like uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, when I'm playing the digital version, I want to be playing the physical version. And when I'm playing the physical version, sometimes I want to be playing the digital version. So it's, it's, it's really an unfortunate situation, but uh, such is the way of things. All right. And that's, that's been my recent experiences with Sentinels of the Multiverse. I got to play a game called Istanbul. I really enjoy worker placement games where they finally do something different, like Outlive, like Istanbul, like Yokohama. In Istanbul, you're moving your main worker around, and when you want to do the action, you just drop off one of your little discs that you have underneath your main worker, and you can go back and pick them up, or you can go to a main square and draw your main workers back, and it's a really interesting system, and I really enjoyed it. Rudiger Dorn loves systems where you just drop things behind you. He did it in Goa. He did it in Traders of Genoa. He did it in Louis XIV. He's, he's done it all in, in, in a lot of the games that he's designed. In a way, it's a minor miracle that I haven't played Istanbul yet. And it's a bit of a shame because I really like Rudiger Dorn. I haven't liked his recent output quite so much. It, to a certain extent, he's kind of in the same status as Knizia for me. I really liked his output during the late 90s and early aughts. But lately, it's just been more uh, family-style games. But... Istanbul is uh, getting a lot of appreciation places. I also want to try Yokohama. Those are two games that I've been meaning to try, but I haven't been able to, to, to get to the table. So I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear you enjoyed it. That's it for Istanbul. Not, not, not Constantinople. Definitely not. Now we're taking a bold stand. Send your hate mail to walker at aircanada.ca. Played another game of Vengeance. Talked about this for the first time last week. I played it solo a couple times, and now this week I, sh- I broke it out multiplayer. This is by uh, Gordon Calleja and Mighty Boards. The opinion of the two other people at the table was very much the same as mine, which was, this is a very good experience, not necessarily a good game. Fabulous theming, wonderful graphic design, really helps to sell it. But the scoring system is wonky. The dice game that you play to murder hordes of thugs while satisfying when you are murdering hordes of thugs doesn't really offer you a whole lot of mitigation for bad rolls. And in a weird way, the game feels like it wants to be cooperative because, you know, you don't want to... You want your friends to do well. You want the, the, the person that are playing who's been wronged by these terrible, terrible people to get their bloody revenge. And it's not satisfying when people fail. So as a competitive experience, it feels a bit awkward in that sense. But I will say that it's got a number of very clever little bits, and it doesn't last too, too long. And overall, it's just such a pleasing execution of the theme that I'll probably get Vengeance at the table another couple of times. Uh, but everyone was definitely of the opinion that this was a fun game, though not a good game. It's definitely one of those poor designs that nonetheless executes on a theme well and does it in a sufficiently attractive way that Vengeance is still an enjoyable experience. So if you have any enthusiasm whatsoever for the kind of movie that Vengeance is emulating, namely the revenge movie where uh, someone gets horribly, horribly mangled at the beginning of the game but then patches themselves together and then murders dozens and dozens of gang people, uh, you know, a pleasant family game is what I'm getting at, basically, then I suggest you give Vengeance a try. All right, I got. I introduced someone new to Xenoshift, and it's a cooperative game, and there's many cooperative games that use a timing mechanism where you're trying to get something done before it's too late and time runs out. Xenoshift is not one of those games. Xenoshift is a game where you're getting constantly punished and you're just trying to hang on to the very end while your base is constantly taking damage. And when you're introducing a new player 
to a game like that, it's you can see in their eyes that they think they're doing something wrong, or it's overly punishing, or when you lose, which we inevitably did, that mm-hmm. they did something wrong, or that it's not a fun game. And then you just, you know, like I say in every, almost every time we play a cooperative game, well, it wouldn't be much fun if you won every time. But I always love Xenoshift, even if we die in the second turn, bad so, card draw or whatever. There's just so many different items and cool combinations you can get. It's really a great game. So the person you introduced Xenoshift to wasn't wasn't a big fan of the difficulty. No, no. I think I think at first, I think after you know I just explained you know that you know you get punished a lot and we lose all the time and and the fact that you know well if you won on the very first game then one would be much reason to play it again. You know what I mean? Replayability would be would not be very high. So Xenoshift is like a, a tower defense game where these aliens are streaming in over and over and you're trying to throw these squads of marines in front of them and you get to equip them with this variety of weapons that you can purchase from the middle and you get to help each other out. And it's a very interesting game. And if you have a chance to try it, I definitely would. I'm surprised at how little appreciation Xenoshift gets. I'm Precisely for how cooperative it actually is. Yeah, that's what I. That's how I explain it when I'm teaching the rules. I was going to say, if you want, if you think you can want to do something, or or you know want to do something, guess what? You can, unless the card specifically says your lane. Then everything else is open game. Get it out there, help each other out, give cards around. It's really a great system. I'm glad they you know threw out the rule book on the cooperative part. Threw out the rule book on the cooperative part. Yeah, what just it? I don't. Know. <laughs> Well, they didn't and get. I just understand what you I mean. I just mean that they didn't get overly wordy. Like you can do this, but you can't do that. And, ah. you, know, you know what I mean? They just sort of you know opened it up. Opened yeah. it up. Yeah. We got to play Fifty First State Master Set again. There were a couple games from our feature, our list of feature games that we really enjoy that we've been playing last week, which I think is uh, always a good sign. We've been kind of uh, going back to the basics for the past couple weeks, and. We talked about how 51st State is a very, very solid card-based tableau builder where there's a, a little bit of player interaction and a little bit of threat, but not a whole a whole bunch. And again, that balance, I think, is, is, is really good. It's about the threat of combat ne- rather than constant combat necessarily. You know, someone starts building up a, a resource of ability to, to, to go kick ass and you start wondering what they're going to do with it. You might start rushing your turns and playing a little bit suboptimally just to, to, to hedge your bets. So a lot of that was on display. Uh, I really appreciate what it's done. We played with the Scavengers expansion, which, uh, you know, in some sometimes I wish it changed up the formula a little bit more, but sometimes you get a card mix out that really does emphasize that, that there are some neat new things uh, going on in the set. So I'm looking forward to exploring that particular subsystem more, because I think that was only the second or third time that I played with Scavengers. You know, it, it's, it's one of the old favorites uh, in our group. Old being, of course, a venerable, venerable age of all of two years old, which is to say it's so long in the tooth that, you know, practically the cards should be decaying. But uh... So true. I really like how Portal supports their games. When you think back, Cry Havoc maybe didn't get received very well, but they still just stood by it and still put it in expansion. Neoshima Hex is still going. They're putting out a new army for it every year. Uh, same thing with 51st State, new scavenger set. Hopefully there's going to be more. I just like how they stand by their own products and just don't, you know, keep you know, punching out new stuff all the time, even though they put out a game called Alien Artifact. But we'll we'll uh, overlook that. Yeah, well, sometimes I wish they wouldn't. <laughs> like with Cry Havoc or Alien Artifacts, I'd be very happy if those designs just crawled off and died. But uh, what else did you play, Walker? I have War Chest on my on my list. War Chest is a is a is a two 
uh, we haven't. I shouldn't say a two-player game. You can play it multiple player, but you I can think play it, it four players with teams. But we haven't done that. I yet. think it's going to fall into the category of best with two, much like uh, the Duke or Onitama. It's one of these abstract sort of you know units out. They can all have their own special ability, back and forth type game. I really like so far the implementation of it. It falls right in line with all the rest of them, but has its own unique twist on it. And I'm looking forward to playing it more for sure. I'm looking forward to exploring it more too, I, but I, I think it's fair to say we both have concerns. Now, one thing we should stress is that it's an absolutely beautiful production. It's got these very lovely embellished cloth bags. It has these very satisfying chips. And I got to say, for whatever reason, I, and, and next time we play War Chest uh, and or Too Many Bones, I'm going to pay a little bit more attention. The chips in Too Many Bones, I find as much of an annoyance as I find as a value-added proposition. We commented on this when we were talking about too many bones but the chips in war chest are just great first of all you don't really stack them as high and uh i think the quality and the 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 clickiness was just emphasized more because they get shuffled in a bag and or just the way they impact the the actual board rather than the mouse pad i don't know just gave them more heft maybe we should put the baddie cue in a bag for you maybe you'll yeah maybe maybe that would be nice uh but the the concern that we have is that it is a very sort of the pace is very deliberate, which is fine, uh, but the hand size in War Chest, it's kind of a bag builder kind of vibe, but it, it does bag building in a relatively novel way. But as a result, the hand size is so small that you end up almost in, in, in obliged to take very, very high risks based on what you and or your opponent are going to draw next round. And sometimes you can cash that out. Sometimes you can make inferences about what's left and and that will inform your risk taking. But very often it's just a question of, well, I'm kind of obliged to move my unit next to yours and either you've got the chip you need in your hand or you're going to draw it in your hand or you won't. And whoever gets the chip they need first is going to inflict the casualty and that can have a huge impact. Maybe this is because we're both playing like monkeys, but this has been very, very determinative in a couple of games we've played. And I'm hopeful that clever play and or uh, more attention to someone's deck and the const- what, what the you know the constituency of the chip that they're going to have in their bag will help mitigate that to a certain extent. So I'm looking forward to more War Chest, but I've got some misgivings. The other misgiving I have is, unfortunately, it runs to all games like this. Only Tama, the Duke, Chess, this game. When you get down to the very end, the last few turns, it almost seems either predetermined or a little bit sloggy at the end. Well, obviously, this is going to happen, you know, and you're just sort of, you know, playing out the last few turns, and they didn't do anything clever or interesting in order to litigate that weirdness at the end of these games. Possibly the expectation is that you should be willing to concede, and by you, I mean one, because we our, our win rate is roughly equal. It's not like one of us is, is routinely trouncing the other. Uh, but in some games, you know, they were designed very much with concessions in mind. Uh, but uh, I agree with you. And, and to a certain extent, it, it, it's even worse than games like that, because just the very way War Chest works is if you're down to one copy of a single unit, all they can do is go on the board to die. Because you can't activate them. Because to activate them, you need another copy of the chip in question. But it's the last one you've got left. So it's just going to be there to be a blocker, which is not particularly satisfying. It's just, you know, it's like, okay, this 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 Gomer is going to go and die. But it is what it is. I, I, I'm hopeful that once we get a little bit more experience with the system, we might be able to be a little bit more clever with it. But as it stands, as I say, I have my concerns. And that's War Chest. So my last one is Manara. We had another family game night, so we... I pulled up Minara, and once again, it was a fabulous hit. Stacking columns and building levels, and 
watching this giant temple take shape, it was yet another hit. And yet another game coming out soon that I'm going to talk about in the news. Very exciting. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. So, with that in mind... Let's move on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So the first thing I'd like to talk about is the fact that Splatterspiel are obviously avid listeners to our podcast because mere moments after we published our scintillating conversation of catch-up mechanics, award forthcoming, they announced that they were going to be releasing an expansion to Food Chain Magnet called Ketchup Mechanism. And indeed, when Walker first introduced the topic and he said ketchup as ketchup, I thought that he was perhaps going to lead to some sort of terrible pun. And that was obviously the inspiration for their design work. So clearly in the two hours since they, they, they heard it, they cobbled together some, some press release and some basis for an expansion. So Food Chain Magnet is going to be expanded. And apparently there are going to be condiments and maybe some other weird stuff. If past is any prologue, then this is going to be a modular expansion where there's a whole bunch of new modules that you can uh, throw in. Food Chain Magnet already has a lot going on, but we both really enjoy the game. I don't know that other than the two of us, we would ever really be in a position to introduce a new player to, to Food Chain Magnet and say, oh, no, by the way, we're going to introduce all these other modules too. Now that I've explained to you how these you know dozen-plus employees work and these dozen-plus milestones work, Here's how condiments work and all this other madness. I think that would be a bit much. But nonetheless, I'm looking forward to see what they come up with. Splatter do interesting stuff. And that is uh, Food Chain Magnate's ketchup mechanism. All right. Like I already talked about, it's a game called Takla. It's yet another dexterity game where you're going to use be using like Jenga blocks. And uh, it's like sort of like a cross four-way. You can play up to four players and there's little lines on the on your little row leading to the middle. And that'll determine your difficulty. And then you start stacking these blocks and you have to create some sort of bridge because there's a pole that sticks out of the middle of the board with a red bead, you know, halfway up the pole. So you have to sort of build this bridge so it hits the bead in the middle of the pole. And I think it's going to be a great little game for sure. Well, it's very visually striking. Probably it's going to cost an arm and a leg, as many of these wooden games do. Because it is from Germany, and it comes in a wooden box, and has all sorts of wooden components. So yes, I will have to take out yet, you know, the fourth board game mortgage on the house, and it'll be fantastic. Well, I look forward to playing on your copy, then. Good stuff. Sophia Wagner's next game is going to be called The Boldest. It uh, seems to have rocketed to the top of the board game Cotness as the time of this recording. Probably because of the absolutely stunning art by Max Prentice. Uh, Sophia Wagner's previous design was Noria, and I commented on on seeking that out and trying it. It was a very interesting game. Uh, looking forward to trying it a couple more times, actually. And uh, The Boldest has a very interesting theme about challenging forest mechanized monsters and uh, other kinds of weirdness. Again, all of this realized in, in, in a very lush way by uh, Max Prentice. So the theme seems to have captured people's attention, and Sophia Wagner has done very interesting work in the past, so I'm very much looking forward to see what, seeing what's come of it. Although, to be fair, my enthusiasm is very much tempered by the fact that at this point we know precious little about this game, about how it works, what it's done, English rules are not yet available, so time will tell. Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about it, like I said, but it does look really amazing, the art, but it looks like it's going to be a card game. I was, I was hoping that it would be more of a, like a, a world, right? Because that art is stunning. I would like to play a whole game in that universe, but it looks as though it'll be just card play. But who knows? Like you said, we don't know much about it. I don't it. know. Blue Moon and Sentinels of the Multiverse are both card only, and they do a very good job of setting up their world. So, On that note of Blue Moon, Mark, have you ever played Blue Moon City? I have played Blue Moon City. And what'd you think of Blue Moon City? Eh, it was fine. Well, it's coming out again. I know. By Simon Games. I have never played it, but I know you're a big fan of Blue Moon, so I thought I'd, I'd talk about it. 
Well, the only area of similarity, the only area of overlap between Blue Moon and Blue Moon City was the card art, but they've changed all that. I haven't done a deep dive into the new art of Blue Moon City, but it doesn't look nearly as compelling as the original uh, anthology of artists for the Blue Moon card game, but w- whatever. Uh, this this is very much in the realm of Knizia designs that I don't find particularly engaging, you know, and his output of... This was, this was put out near the period when he started just churning out games that I thought were not particularly consequential and not particularly interesting. Some people do like Blue Moon City, though, and uh, some people even that, uh, whose uh, opinions I respect. But, you know, the card play didn't do much for me, uh, but apparently it's the case that it's one of those out-of-print games that fetches very, very high prices on the secondary market, so... Best of luck to Colmany or not. Last on my list is Assassin's Creed Brotherhood of Venice. I only put it on here because it's a cooperative game where you're sneaking around and assassinating. And the only, there's many co-op games where you sneak around and kill. But in this one, it actually talked about building your barracks up or building up your hideout. And I thought maybe that would be an interesting twist on the game. You, you, know? mean, you mean the tacked-on nonsense in the oh, video game series that nobody liked? You never, I, I, you never know. Like, I, I'm always, <laughs> I'm always looking forward to, like, new mechanisms and interesting sure. implementations. I'm just hoping that they do a good job of bringing this whole, you know, building your base up and then going out and hitting missions and, and much like they do in uh, Kingdom Death Monster, right? That's very much the interesting part of the game is the it's the busy work, the paperwork of, you know, forming your base and doing that. And I'm hoping that they, they that's implemented well in Assassin's Creed Brotherhood of Venice. Or we could just play Seal Team Flicks. Or we could just play Seal Team Flicks. So our feature game this week is called Gaslands. This was put out last year by Glenn Ford and Mike Hutchison and Osprey Publishing. Osprey Publishing, we talked about this before, is an interesting outfit. They publish a lot of miniature game rule books that are just rule books, and this is one of them. Osprey doesn't sell anything else in this line, and indeed... We'll be talking more about all the things that you can and cannot buy in connection with this product, because that's one of the interesting things about Gaslands. But Gaslands is a tabletop miniature rule system. Osprey has also put out Bolt Action, which is a very popular uh, realm of 20th century warfare miniatures rule sets. They're going to be publishing the upcoming Martin Wallace game Wildlands, which is an actual board and card game. Uh, I look forward to being disappointed by yet another Martin Wallace design that does nothing for me, but... Don't sugarcoat it. (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. (laughs) But Gaslands is very much Mad Max via reality television. The theme of the game is that in a dystopian future, the... Uh, everybody watches car ca- car combat on television, and so there's even a notion of audience participation, and there's this very strong notion of sponsored teams. So it's less running around in the desert in a war rig and more about running around in an arena in a war rig, although there are some scenarios that mess with that uh, a, a little bit. And it is a template-based miniatures game and so obviously the chief comparison is going to be to x-wing which is probably the dominant uh tabletop miniatures game if you want to call it a tabletop miniatures game because it too uses uh, a template movement system but we'll get to all that in a little bit why don't we start with walker's patented exclusive incredibly unhelpful snide summary of what one does in gaslands well 
I have one word here that's actually written. I'm going to go on a bunch, but it's just fun, Mark. Gasland's just straight up fun. I get that there's only one word in your notes. Why was it repeated 70 times and in a bright red font? I'm well, starting to, I'm well, starting to worry I, about it. I thought you. just the one word would be short, and I thought you'd want more, so I just... No. Okay. But that being said, there is huge nostalgia. Mad Max, Beyond the Thunderdome, there's Death Race 2000, there's uh, there's Car Wars, there's so hundreds of games that have come out to try to... Uh, give people this feeling of getting in a car with guns on it, shooting back and forth at each other, running stuff over, smashing it into each other, you know, pulling figure eights and skids and, and you know, doing whatever you want, like open sandbox, cars on the board, doing whatever you want feeling. And in my opinion, it hasn't been done well yet. Like it's either too long, too many rules, you know, get you know tied up in so many different things. But I feel Gaslands pulls it off the best so far and, and hits everything that I feel really fast, has the guns. They do the damage they should. It's not overpowering. There's you, You're kept in the game the whole time. You get to do these vicious skids and spin outs and, 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 turbo boosts and everything you want to do there's actually i'm not gonna go into much more of that because there's different game modes and all sorts of different things we'll get into more of that later but gaslands is just an all-around fun interesting game so let's talk about how the movement of the cars works because i agree with you that one of the things that is bedeviled not just racing combat games but racing games in general has been that they take too long and that's one of the things that is utterly baffling to me and desperately unfortunate. It's one of the reasons why a lot of racing games I don't enjoy because it's just especially galling when a game about speed ends up being very, very tedious and about resolving collisions and laborious measurement and all that stuff. The way it works in Gaslands is you've got all these cars and we'll talk a little bit more about the cars later because that's definitely a, a selling feature. And the first thing you do is you pick a template. You have all these templates and if all you've done is bought the book you can just print out templates and glue them on to a cereal box. And that's what I did for my first few games of Gaslands, and I did not feel like I was getting shortchanged of that. But then if you want to upgrade and, you know, give somebody 20 bucks or so for premium acrylic templates, that is definitely something you'll want to do if you if you keep into the game. But anyway, the first thing you do with a car is you pick the template that it's going to do. And already, anybody who's ever done a template-based mi- miniatures game knows that this can be a serious element of challenge because you need to visualize what kind of template is going to get you where you go because you're not allowed to pre-measure you're not allowed to say okay well put this one in front of your car and say okay that doesn't quite work i'll put that away and put the next one out according to the rules strictly speaking the moment you touch a template that's the one you're using but i've never played with anyone who does it that way instead we do it the moment you've picked up a template because you can just shove them around with your fingers for a little bit to get to the one you want to anyhow uh and already you might then discover that you've accidentally run into another car, one of yours possibly, or you've accidentally run into a series of barrels, or, as is more frequently the case with my opponents, such as the esteemed Michael Walker, that you've pulled off the perfect turn, and you've hairpinned right between the opponent's minds and those bunch of barrels that I thought was going to get in your way. And that's one of the things that happened. Uh, so, so that, right away, the first choice that you make with every activation with the car, there's moments of suspense, of excitement, of surprise, of delight, of being able to see the perfect maneuver being executed and all that. And then you have this lovely little dice game of pushing your luck because in Gaslands, every car has a gear. And the higher gear you're in, the faster you're going and the more frequently you're going to activate. Now, this can be both good and bad because the faster you're going it changes what maneuvers you have access to. Suddenly, 
you're not able to do the hairpin turn anymore because you're going too fast. And you might find out that the only thing you're allowed to do at gear six is to plow straight ahead, straight off the edge of the board or what have you. And the way you get to these different gears is through this little push-your-luck dice game. Every car has a, has a handling rating, and that's the number of dice you get to throw. And the dice are where a simple template maneuver system gets complicated and elaborated onto the nth degree. So why don't you talk about some of the, the, the crazy stuff that you can pull off? Because you alluded to it before. Like Mark said, you pick the template... Uh, the template will tell you how complicated that particular turn is, depending on what speed you're going. So you're going to start off with some hazards, and then you roll your handling dice. And there's either spins or slides, depending on what you want to roll. You can even push your luck and take more hazards to re-roll the dice in case you rolled very badly. And then in Mark's case, you roll again and roll badly again. Yep. And if you get to a certain number of hazards, guess what? You're going to flip over and spin out and explode. But then... There's a good, of course, there are good shift dice. So you can use these uh, the shift dice to either cancel out the spins and slides that you get, or you can use the shift dice to shift up or down gears. That being said, I, I want to go back and talk about these gears because it is by far, I think, one of the most interesting parts of the game and the most intriguing parts of the game because technically there are six turns or six phases to every full round, and they're represented by the six gears. And as long as you keep pushing your car up in these gears, you get to activate in that turn. So if you, you know, rolled poorly or didn't want to push your luck and stayed in second gear, when you go to turn three or third gear phase, you don't get to activate because you didn't push your luck and get up into that higher gear. So you keep pressing your cars faster and faster and limiting yourself to what turns you can make because you're trying to stay in the turn longer. And I think that's a really fascinating part of the game. And it also really helps, I think, separate gas lines from some of the problematic areas of other tabletop miniatures games because a lot of tabletop minis games suffer from the problem that early turns are incredibly uninteresting. And this is even true very often of Infinity. Infinity is my favorite tabletop mini system, but it is nonetheless the case that in certain circumstances, all you're going to be doing with the first few activations is just closing the distance. It's like, okay, well, they're not going to be able to do anything interesting back here. I need to go close the distance for a while. Infinity minimizes this, but it's... It still happens. In Gaslands, at the start of the game, everybody's in gear one, unless you've bought a perk that says you're not. Anyway, more, more on a little bit later about army building. And so as a result, just shifting up gears to stay in the round longer is a question of balancing your attitude towards risk, how many hazards you want your vehicle to start building up, how fast you feel comfortable going. Um, if, you're, if you're me and you're smart, you'll make sure your cars go slowly because you're bad at this game. And so as a result, the early turns are immediately suspenseful. The very first action of the game, the very first activation, unlike the majority of other minis games, you have to make these decisions and you have to, you get to do fun trade-offs just to see how long your car is going to stay in the first round. And then that's even before we start worrying about things like dodging enemy cars or the weapons fire and all those other stuff that's going to come later. Further to which... That also leads into the one of the other ways in which Gaslines avoids a lot of the problems inherent in a lot of other minis games. Because you're obliged to start using more and more aggressive templates if you want your cars to stay in the round, you avoid the scrum problem that a lot of other minis games have. I mean, look, you've all seen 
those games of Warhammer 40k that last a couple of hours and what happens is first you have a line of guys at the outset and then a few minutes later you've got a line of guys a little bit closer and then by the end of the game you've just got a whole bunch of guys in the middle and they're they're fighting it out. And it's less bad in 40k than it is in some other Warhammer products. But a lot of minis games suffer from this. Sometimes even some good minis games suffer from this. Gaslands doesn't in part because they're cars and you don't lead to a scrum in cars, but precisely because what happens in the middle once you start passing each other is a function of these strategic risks you've taken on early, earlier on in the game. Not only does that mean that those early decisions are are, uh, are consequential, but it also ensures a fluidity of a mid and late game. And that is definitely something that separates Gaslands out from a lot of the other competing miniatures games on the market. So why are these templates so great? Well, unlike in Warhammer, you're not measuring, you're not you're not getting these like little, oh, you know, is the angle quite wrong or anything? It's a nice straight template. There's no question, you know, you know, holding a tape measure out, if you got the angle off a little bit, you hold the template over the table, it'll tell you exactly if you're, you know, going over obstacles or going over caltrops or mines or oil slicks, all of these things that, you know, helicopters can drop from the from the air onto your poor, innocent cars. He had it coming. So the key difference between the way this game handles templates and the way X-Wing handles templates, I think, is actually kind of parallel to a, to a comparison we made last week between Battlecon and Sacker Arms, because X-Wing is a simultaneous play system. You, Everyone chooses at the same time in secret what, te- what templates your ships are going to do, and sometimes this actually leads to ships passing in the dark, or sometimes even a weird kind of scrum where everyone's bumping up against each other. Now, granted, if you're talented at the game, this is going to happen in a way that you wanted to. I never really got that good, and so a lot of my games were very frustrating in X-Wing. In Gaslands, though, it's sequential play. It's not it's not simultaneous play, and so you have at least the advantage of knowing that your targets are not going to be slipping past you at the same time. And we made that comparison in terms of Battlecon and Sacro Arms. In Sacro Arms, you know what range your attacks are going to be at. Whereas in Battlecon, because it's simultaneous play, uh, sometimes people can find it very, very frustrating because their quote-unquote plans are always undone by the simultaneous choices of opponents. And I find that in uh, an- another salient difference between X-Wing and Gaslands is why Gaslands is more fluid and fun. In X-Wing, if you make a mistake and you bump into one of your own ships, for example, the consequence of this is you don't get to do something. It's mostly a, a sort of derivative of skipping a turn. Or if your opponent outsmarts you and you end up bumping into them, you end up skipping a turn, basically. You can't fire, you can't do actions, etc., etc. In Gaslands, though, if you mess up and you bump into something, something cool is going to happen. Someone's going to get their nose bloodied. Maybe it's you. Maybe, which is probably not ideal, but at least something is happening. And you do get a more satisfying tactile sense of things proceeding. It's also the case that in, just, just to emphasize this, this, uh, this disagreement, in X-Wing, sometimes if you make a mistake and you plow headlong into an asteroid field, you're often going to eat it for several turns in a row. And this can be very, very, very tedious. Gaslands, in a number of instances, and I just want to highlight one right now, has had the courage to make very, very unthematic, unrealistic gameplay concessions that really serve to keep the game moving. And one of them is, if you collide into an obstacle, say, for example, a, a giant shipping container, which I use AT43 terrain pretty much exclusively for my uh, miniatures gaming, in subsequent activations, after the container you know basically crushes the front half of your car, you act as though the container isn't there. So it's not like you're going to have to run into it over and over and over and over again until you clear. You hit it once... And then you move on, yeah, and the no, game continues. Nor do you have to like reverse or do a hairpin turn exactly. or any of these things. It doesn't change your momentum. You just keep going 
right on through it. And another part of this is that uh, with the templates and not having to do it simultaneously is it becomes part of the game where you, if you want to move quickly and shoot something, then you do that activation first. Or if you want to wait wait for your opponent to get closer to you, then you can move other cars on the you know on the periphery of the system, of the board and make him move first. So now he's in your range. So I, I really I really like that part of the game as well. Should we talk about components now? Yes, it comes with fantastic components, i.e. none. So I can't believe, actually, in, in, in many ways, I find it shocking that we've gotten this far and we haven't mentioned that this game lets you play with Hot Wheels cards. And it's a testament to the game design that the game design stands on its own merits on top of the fact that it lets you play with Hot Wheels cards. And so it, the, the book itself is just a book. And, you know, you can print out the templates you, if you want. Uh, you can use generic D6s instead of the custom D6s. I actually got used to using the generic D6s. I now have the custom versions uh, done very kindly by a friend of the show. But, and I'm happy that I have them. But, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel the absolute necessity of them when I was playing with generic D6s. But here's the thing. I've been a miniatures gamer on and off in various systems for well over a decade. I think you've been for much, much longer than that. And I have never, ever been in a position where I can walk into more or less almost any kind of retail consumer goods environment and have access to what are effectively now miniatures game units. My supermarket, the dollar store, any toy store, almost any variety store, now there are units for your war game there. And I cannot tell you how this has transformed my retail life. I don't buy cars all the time, but all the time I get to say, oh, look, what kind of cool Hot Wheels do they have? Would this work in Gaslands? What kind of unit would this be in Gaslands? Oh, $1.25? Thank you very much. And this is revelatory, right? Because miniatures gamers are used to paying grotesque quantities of money for their units. And now it's worth it. I don't regret, well, I don't regret all of the minis I've bought. I regret some of them, but many of them I don't regret. But dear Lord, the, the, the realm of economical toy purchasing that this has opened up for me, it's marvelous. Yeah, it's, and it's already built and painted. Yep. I, know, I know you want, you know, people want to, you know, there's hundreds of cars out there that you can see online that people have modified and made extra cool. But the fact that you can just take them out of the package and they're, they look fantastic on the board is, is also fun as well. Do you want to blow people up with the car that you drive? You can probably do that. Do you want to blow people up with the car that you've wanted since you were 12? You can do that too. And indeed, it is the case that lots of people have made very, very, very beautiful weathered and post-apocalyptic looking cars with weapons grafted onto them. And you can do that. And that's okay. And that's fine. But it is very much the case that in other wargaming environments, if the miniature isn't built and painted, it's somehow deficient and it makes the game look bad to a certain extent. I Look, I, I played with lots of unpainted armies in my time, but no one can deny that the normal ideal form is with proper terrain and with fully painted miniatures. And that takes a lot of time and a lot of money. But here, you can take fresh off the card Hot Wheels cars or Matchbox or what have you, and it's not going to make the game look bad. You're still playing with, as you say, fully assembled, fully painted units, and that's marvelous. And it really is something that I've been I've been waiting for 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 pretty much every other miniature system because it's such an expensive and time consuming hobby. And Gaslands is just so accessible. 
True. And for, but for those people who do enjoy that kind of thing, this is easily modified. You can watch all the videos, people taking their cars apart. You can paint them exactly the way you want them, put on the weapons you like, put on the spikes on the front. And then you get to make your own army list as well in this game. Might as well, you know, transition into the fact that you can make your own lists up. You get like so many cans. Cans of gasoline. Cans yes. of gasoline they use for currency because that makes sense. And you can just, you know, choose from a plethora of different weapons and, and armaments and grenades you can throw out to, you know, just putting a bunch of crew in a bus with pistols that shoot at the windows. You know, the, you know, the choices are endless. So it makes it a very, uh, much like, I think that's one of the, the pulls to miniature gaming because it's the models that you bought. You put them together the way you wanted to. You painted them the way you want. You made your army list. You made your whole army the way you enjoy doing it. And you can do this in Gaslands as well. So I think that's yet another reason why it's doing well. Like any other full-fledged miniatures game, there's lots of different ways to approach this as a hobby. We both know people who collect, assemble, and paint miniatures and never play the miniatures game on which they are nominally based. And then there are other people who, like me who approach them primarily as games and assemble and paint them largely because I, I kind of feel obligated to. And Gaslands, like any other good miniatures game, accommodates all range of this. You just, you just want to have whatever cars you got at the dollar store for a couple bucks a pop, that's fine. Do you want to only play with the cars that you've meticulously reconstructed and, you know, assembled new wheels for and grafted on other bits and painted real nice? That's fine. You can do that, too. And so it really is the case that there are multiple ways to appreciate this as a hobby. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about miniatures gaming, just the, the different ways that people approach it. Some people love tinkering with army builds. I love tinkering with army builds, shaving a point here and getting a point there. And I can definitely say that the options in Gaslands are viable and interesting and really compelling. There's lots of different ways to, 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 to approach how to be successful in a game of Gaslands, and that's represented in the different army build options. Some people don't care. Some people would rather, you know, they, they care very much about the cars that they've constructed in real life, uh, but they don't really care about the fictitious version of the car that's driving there. So they just want to play with their customized little toy, but they don't really care about the list. And again, that's great. There's lots of different ways to approach this, and it's wonderful. On that topic, there are lots of different scenarios that are involved in Gaslands as well. The sort of default one is what's called a death race, which has its uh, has some shortcomings, especially if you uh, don't play by the proper rules. Parenthetically, there is a serious misprint in the rulebook about how to play the death, death race. Before you play Gaslands, check the fact. Uh, you're going to go want to visit Gaslands.com and find out how to play Death Race properly. Otherwise, things are going to get a little messed up. But it really does offer a balance between racing and shooting. And all the scenarios that I played out of the book really do let you approach uh, approach it in a lot of different ways. So really fast teams can do well, really violent teams can do well, and balanced teams can do well too. And that really just feeds into the build options to, to give you a universe of variety. Yep, and speaking of universe of variety, motorcycles, buggies, cars, uh, large sedans, tanks, buses, trucks, trucks, uh, monster trucks, helicopters, you know, you name it, you can uh, build it and get it on the table. My blood is chrome. Witness me, Walker. So there are some downsides. I've talked about how accessible it is, but you are going to need your own terrain. Uh, you're going to need less terrain for a game of Gaslands than you will for lots of other minis games. And honestly, again, given that all of your units are necessarily going to be painted and pre-assembled, you can get away with a lot of makeshift nonsense. Like, you can get by with just rocks if you really want to, uh, scattered about your table. It's 
very flexible in terms of table size. The rules recommend four feet by four feet, but honestly, I've played on uh, you know three feet by four feet or three feet by five feet, and it all works. It's a very flexible system, and it's much more permissive than a lot of the other ones. But it is nonetheless the case that this is a full-fledged tabletop minis game. And so some of the things that uh, Walker and I take for granted might strike board gamers as a little bit problematic. Walker did talk about how, given that it's a template-based movement system, there's, a le- there's less ambiguity in terms of where, where things are on the table. But there is still going to be some ambiguity, and you have to live with that. I remember reading, by the way, this will just give you an indication of of where we stand on the seriousness of the games that we play. A lot of people online say that, you know, the first thing that you have to do if you're going to play with any Hot Wheels car on a Gaslands table is you need to glue the wheels so that the wheels don't turn anymore because they say models don't have turning wheels, toys do. I'm like, screw that, they're all toys. I remember there was a a board game reviewer by the name of Scott Nicholson who uh, I really liked his point of view on things. He made a habit of calling all miniatures dolls just because it got gamers angry. And I'm very much in favor of that perspective. If you if you look down your nose at anybody uh, and say, well, you know, my, my heavily modified m- miniature model isn't a toy. It's a toy. It's a toy. You're playing with toys. Own it. Live it, love it. But I do recommend this as a first tabletop miniatures game, but it is a tabletop miniatures game. And so you're going to have to do a certain amount of DIY, whether it's just printing out and gluing the movement templates onto a cereal box or what have you. Uh, all All that you're going to get from Osprey Publishing is a soft cover book. And that's all you're going to get. And parenthetically, the rules are not terribly well organized. You're going to constantly be forgetting where to find, you know, this perk or that perk. And there are misprints in the book. You're going to need the fact. But the level of due diligence, the level of effort and elbow grease you're going to have to put in to this tabletop miniatures game, if it's your first one, is vastly lower than any other product I've ever seen. I only have two minor or two bad points. One minor, it just alludes to what you just said, is the templates. I'm very much in in the other camp where... I really enjoy X-Wing because it has two little, you know, sprots on the front of each base. Each base is square. You put the template right in between two things, and there's two things in the back, and that's exactly where, you know, the car ends up. That's why I didn't like Wings of War because Mm. you you put out all these cards, and they always, you know, went screwy and skewed, and, you know, it was like, okay, well, where does my plane end up now? And you're never quite sure. Unfortunately, Gaslands sort of falls into that, so if... When once I start getting into it a little bit more, I'm definitely going to be basing my cars. So then these templates, you know, will you know square up solely against it. I have no in any of these games. I never have any problem with other people moving their figures, and you know, it's whatever. It's just it's it, it's my own thing. It's like when I move my guys, I I want it to be this is where I wanted you know where it should be, and I'm not fiddling with the rules at all. So it's just a thing for me. And the other big thing is. The fact that we're buying Hot Wheels cars, the fact that the rule book is a little harder to get and some gaming stores are are finding it difficult to get in, you're not going to find much support from your local hobby store due to the fact that they're not making any money on this game. You know, if they find if they do get the rule book in, then that's all they're really selling because there's nothing else for them to sell. So there's really no reason for them to push this game. And th- that's not faulting them at all. I'm just saying it, it might make it more difficult to find a community for this game to flourish in. 
That's true. Although it is the case that whenever you're playing the game or whenever you tell people that, you know, the elevator pitch for Gaslands, people do get immediately interested once they see what you're doing. But you're right. You're absolutely right. In a way, it feels uh, vaguely exploitive, actually, to, you know, go to go to a, a local game store that has all the terrain and use it for your game of Gaslands because it really has nothing to do with them. And it probably never will. Unfortunately not. One final minor note I'd like to make, though, uh, again, in, in, additionally in terms of how accessible it is and how Gaslands has some advantages over other miniatures tabletop games, it does multiplayer really well. It's not at its best multiplayer. I still vastly prefer two-player Gaslands. But just by virtue of how it works and how the activation system works and the fact that you're talking about a race with a bunch of different cars, it's very, very easy in almost all of the scenarios to have, you know, more or less as many players as you want. It starts to drag a little bit, and you might have to be a little bit conscientious about how many points you give each player. But you can you don't even need to, to shoehorn it into team play. You can have three players or five players, and they all run their own group of cars. You run into player elimination then, in some instances. There are ways to get back in the game. There's an audience vote system that's basically a catch-up mechanism. And it works fine. Uh, but broadly speaking, it's certainly more flexible than a lot of other minis games, which are just, you know, two players or bust. So that's another way in which Gaslands is pretty easy to get get going. So if your local game, gaming group has never done minis games before, and maybe is a little bit curious, and you'd be willing to, to, to plunk down the 20 bucks for the books and a few more bucks for some cars, and willing to play your first couple of games with rocks or books on the table as terrain, then I, I think you could do... Uh, I can't think of a better way to get started than something like Gaslands. And this is especially true if you've enjoyed some of the sort of quasi-crossover introductory minis games like your X-Wing, like your Armada, stuff like that. We've been having a blast with Gaslands. I'm a huge fan, and I give it my highest recommendation, especially since the, 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 the point of entry is so inexpensive. You can do a lot worse. And when you get tired of it, it'd be very easy, unlike other miniature games, to get rid of your models because you never know there's children out there will be more than happy to play with your cars. Indeed. And that is Gaslands. So our topic this week is on the perils of collecting, namely the situation that both Walker and I find ourselves in, and many of you listening at home probably uh, find yourselves in, the downsides of maintaining a board game collection. And this is a suggestion that Walker made, I think because he's feeling it lately. Let me let me just share a, a minor anecdote that happened lately, and it, it hurt me deep in my soul, and it's not anyone's fault. I just found it very sad. Walker was standing in his dining room, which is where his games are stored, looking across the bright, the brightly colored boxes that, that festoon his Kallax shelves. And he said, I really don't like my collection. And that was sad. It was very sad. I felt I, it, there's something deeply sad to me about someone having a, a reasonably sizable collection. You're around 200 games. Not, not liking it. That, that, that's just Desperately well, depressing. Not so much not liking it. It's just I, I, I just looked across the collection and realized there was so many games there I've bought for other groups or other play sessions or other people, and 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 I've I've decided I need to be more selfish and buy games that that I want. It's like I often <laughs> see games like oh that's going to work great in that group or I need more party games because you know I bring games to this group so I need to get. These but you games love party and, games, uh, within reason. Okay. Well, now maybe maybe this is just revealing to me less that there are perils to, to being a collector. Maybe I just don't know you at all. That that could be true as well. Well, the most this is the biggest point that I wanted to why I wanted to talk about this particular thing is that someone had asked me on the on the forums 
because we have a thread there, which I wanted to plug as well, about introducing topics and games that people want us to talk about. He asked about uh, War of the Ring. War of the Ring is a fantastic game, but it's very rules heavy. So if you have a group that's, you know, four or five players and you only have two or three games and War of the Ring is one of them, then War of the Ring is a fantastic game. When I had War of the Ring, which I had it for about, you know, five years, it just never got played because it's such rules heavy. You know, you bring it out, it takes forever to reteach it, you have to relearn it. You know, you get halfway through and you realize that you've made mistakes and then it goes back on the shelf and it doesn't get played again. So it's not only War of the Ring, there's games like that, like Twilight, like games that benefit from getting multiple plays. And when you have a huge collection like this and you need to play multiple games or you're always on the quest for like the newest, you know, game mechanism or trying new games out of the time, then you just don't get to get these multiple plays in. So games like Gaia Project or Twilight Struggle or like we talked about Food Chain Magnet, these games just benefit from playing them over and over again. In terms of maintaining a collection, though, that's one of the great things because you can have room in a genuine collection for some of those more niche games. If it were the case that you and I were limited to just a couple games, for example, we would necessarily be obliged, I think, to be, as you say, less selfish because we know that we would... Only we would always be playing with uh, we 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 would need titles that appealed to a general audience. It's precisely because that we here I'm talking about general audience in our podcast. That's weird, <laughs> but you know on a relative scale of things, general audience in the same way that 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 Catan is general audience or Pandemic is general audience. But the moment you start getting up into double triple digits in terms of titles, that's where you have more room for the obscure bits of nonsense that aren't going to hit the table that often. And even with all that being said, you play Gaia Project all the time. It's true, but I'm saying but that that's at the cost of other games not getting played now. And that's another point I have. There's games on the shelf that go years without being played. Sure. And you do you not like having them around? I do. Well, that, I think that goes into a different... See, I also have this, I also have this word here called hoarder. Yeah. Are you a hoarder? I don't know. Am I a hoarder of board games? I'm not sure. I have board games in four different homes right now. That could be a problem. That's more because you're a hobo. That that's less. That has less to do with that. I don't. I just, I'm just saying that that's a thing. Sure, it's a thing that's that's happening right now. <laughs> that's what's going on. Reality. So, <laughs> let's talk about this this issue of. The, the sort of the quest for novelty, because that is very much what drives a lot of our acquisitions. We want to get new things because they're new and they're clever. Now, it's easy to focus on the downside of that, and I'll, I'll, I'll address the downside of that in a moment. But let's not ignore the fact that, again, just over the course of the past year, by virtue of the fact that we love trying new weird stuff, that we've had lots of really positive gaming experiences, that we wouldn't if we were in a position, which is an entirely reasonable position, an entirely reasonable position of saying, I've got four or five games that I really like, I'm not going to get anymore. I don't mean to say that these people aren't, you know, genuinely gamers, or they're not, you know, I'm more of a pure gamer than they are. I am, like, look, it's, it's, a, it's a perverse situation that I'm in. I've got, 
I've got about 600 games, which I realize by the standards of some people is absurdly over the top, but by some people is barely adequate. We know somebody, we have a mutual acquaintance who's who's uh, r- roughly around 1,400. I, I went and checked. So you and I are much closer to each other than either of us are, are, are to him. So all of this obviously is relative, but it's only by virtue of the fact that we go out in search of these new things that our collection is that big to begin with. And... I don't think that we can uh, divorce the fact that we're collectors from the fact that we go out and try these new things because we are the we are the primary game acquirers in our circle. Uh, the other people aren't, you know, going and checking the online merchants to see what's new and what's coming out. I mean, it stands to reason because we're we're the fools that actually bothered to start screaming into a can. But it's so true. Like well, I said, I don't have a problem with the collecting itself. I'm just wondering, like, what are the consequences of of said. Okay, Affliction. So, okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, in an ideal world, let's, so let's get down to brass, brass tacks. Let's start talking about specifics because I'd like to, I'd like to better understand where you're coming from, and maybe through that we could we could help our viewers better understand where you're coming from. Could you give me an example of number one, a game that you acquired simply because you you felt like you quote unquote had to to better accommodate desires that are not your own, right? So something that you got because you thought other people would like it and left to your own devices you wouldn't have, but you got it anyway. And number two, a game, and maybe it's War of the Ring, a game that if you felt your collection was super small and super focused and we only played a small collection of games, you would still have and master, but because of our drive for new experiences, you've not not been able to do. So the first example, right off the top of my head, would be a game called When I Dream. Picked up when I dream because we have a, a game night at down at the local gaming store where it's a variety of people. So I wanted to pick up a game like a party game that I thought they would all enjoy, and I don't think it would be. I don't think that's a game that's usually in my wheelhouse. It's very light and very silly, and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm not trying to to say that, but it's definitely not a game that I would normally get myself. And so you felt that this was sort of your obligation as a collector. To, to, to get this so as to have something available for people whose tastes are not yours. True, but I also went just that extra step. Like, it had that one novelty thing of, you know, the you know wearing the blindfold. And, you know, it had that one quirky mechanism that I wanted to explore, much like uh, necrophiliac? What's the... Nyctophobia. Nyctophobia. We've talked about nyctophobia, and it's the same sort of thing. It has that one... You know, you know, you wear the black, and you got to feel around, and you got to, you know, it's. I really want to explore how that plays out on the table. Being going to all these different groups pushes me in this direction of, you know, getting those games for that reason. Whereas if it was just uh, the single group and a small amount of games, that I would not even think about getting that game. Okay, fair enough. So what? So let's let's segue to the other thing. What's the opportunity cost? What in an ideal universe, one where you were not driven for new experiences, one where you were content to revisit the same games over and over and over again, what do you think you would have that you don't have now? Is it War of the Ring or is it something else? Well, there's War of the Ring. There's a uh, uh, Tide of Iron, fantastic World War II game, huge you know front end heavy rules, but that or Memoir Forty Four, games like that where. You know, you could get right into just, you know, one-on-one or, you know, multiple. that You can, you know, play multiple times, huge scenarios. It's telling, I think, that all of those are two-player games because one of the things that I find increasingly difficult for, for exogenous reasons, this has nothing to do with being a collector or being the primary game acquirer, I actually find two-player games very hard to get to the table uh, because, in a way, it feels oddly antisocial. 
it it you have to go to the effort uh certainly in the social situations we find ourselves in we have to 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 go to the effort of setting aside time to to play a game and then deliberately or either not inviting or excluding everybody else. And so in a way, it feels like the opportunity cost is not so much in the other games we could be playing, but the opportunity cost is the fact that we're not spending time with our other friends as well and the fact that we can barely stand each other. Yes, it's very painful. Yeah. But on the plus side, my ability to suppress my gag reflex has, has, you know, doubled. You hide it very well, I I got to say. It's pretty good. I got to say. I like it. Do you understand what I'm getting at? I totally do. So are there are there non two player games where you, you, you feel that this is a serious problem? Just the ones I listed. Like I said, okay. either like Gaia Project, like I always wanted. That you to, play all the time. That I, I, do, I do play all the time because I think that is the game I finally found. I've always wanted to have that one game that we play over and over and challenge each other at. Games like, you know, well, then I can say uh, Food Chain Magnet or the, the games that you've tried to like Antiquity, you've tried to introduce games like that that have huge depth, but because they're so rules heavy, it's hard just to, you know, throw it out on the table. It's much, it's, it's much easier if everybody knows the rules and helps set it up and then we just get right into playing it. And if you're in a, in a group that had a small amount of games, that would be something everyone would already know the rules and it'd be a game that you could play all the time. Fair enough. So, so I've, I've been interrogating your, your views partially because I'm curious, but I mean, coming from my perspective, I've always been uh, the primary rules explainer, even if it's not my game. I often find myself in the position of being the primary rules explainer, and I don't really mind that. I also enjoy reading rule books, some of them. Some of them I find incredibly painful, uh, but some of them I, I genuinely enjoy reading. So when it's the case that we're going to play what might be called an appointment game, right? Because we're talking mostly here about appointment games that don't that 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 gather dust in a collection. Primarily because if you're going to play them, it's not that you're sitting around saying what are we going to play. It's instead like, okay, we're going to plan to play this. Like the last appointment game we probably played was Civilization. And that was because I wanted to play Civilization saying, like, "All right, guys, we're getting together at this day. We're going to play us some Civilization. Get ready." And in context like that, I don't find it particularly burdensome to spend the 10 to 15 minutes to reread a rule book because I don't need to give it a close reading again because I, re- I remember vaguely how the game works, but I you know might not remember the specifics of the turn order and you know setup of course always eludes things, but that's fine. And so if you have if you have a good head for rules and you are able to take control of your own social life enough that you that you make time for these you know appointment games then i think it's fine it's 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 the latter problem the exerting enough control to get people to sit down to play a game i've been wanting to get a good multiplayer gmt game to the table for a while and there have been two things in my way one of them is your incredible narrow-mindedness about anything that GMT puts out and the smirk that you're giving me right now when I mention GMT. And number two, the fact that I find it very socially taxing to be like, all right, guys, who's who, who wants to play this specific game at this specific time? We're going to get together and do this specific thing. Uh, I, I don't know why. That's, that's just a me problem. That's not a the game problem. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. Two things about having a large collection that I find very... Uh, that I do enjoy a great deal. One of them is the knowledge that I could do those things, which I know that's absurd, right? That that's a ridiculous statement. I never do this thing, or I almost never do this thing. But I could, and I know, and knowing that I could makes me happy, which is ridiculous. But it is what it is. And number two, 
I do actually enjoy having the physical objects for, for two reasons. Number one, I enjoy supporting uh, publishers and designers that put out good work. And even if I know I'm not going to play it much, I would like to at least you know vote with my dollars in, in the participatory democracy that is our marketplace. Pardon me for being an unreconstructed capitalist. And number two, uh, the fact that I now have a place in my home where I can just go and, 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 and like look over my the, the history of my gaming life. It's the same reason why I collect movies. You know, especially with Netflix and streaming everything, I don't have to, but I still enjoy having the DVD of a movie. And even when I'm not watching it, I get to go to the shelf where it is and I get to see all the things. Like, like I've said before, I only curate two things left in my life anymore. I used to curate all kinds of things. I used to curate books. I used to curate, well, I used to have collections of other things. I used to curate far more uh, Valkyries than I have now, Valkyries being Macross toys. Uh, I don't really do that so much anymore, but I still curate board games and I still curate DVDs because it's, they're, they're sufficiently, uh, important to me. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I deal with all the, the, the problems of having a collection because it still brings me that kind of joy. Now, is my money best served elsewhere? Well, of course it is, but so is most anything. Or, but is it really? Like I said, this is one of the sayings I always to give to people. People spend their whole lives looking for what makes them happy. We are lucky enough to find that already. And I, I'm... Wow, that's deep, man. And, and I have the same feeling as well. You like when you you know walk down the stairs or you know you go into that room and just knowing they're there, you know, or having that rough day at work, you just you know you can just picture yourselves and know that you're going to get to go home to that and you know you know break open a new game and go over it again and then say oh yeah we're going to call these people up or you know in the during your lunch break you just send out a message hey you know I'm done at three we're doing this boom. You're much better at doing that, right? I, 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 I can't help but feel that if you were the GMT enthusiast and I were the skeptic, I would have played many GMT games by now, precisely because you're like, this is what's happening, guys. Come over. <laughs> hey, I suggested GMT game and you crapped all over it. I wanted to try Churchill and you said, no, no, we're not playing that dumb game. No, no, no. Okay, you never suggested it. You inquired gently, and I responded that Churchill hey, is not a good I, game. I opened the door to a GMT game, and you slammed it That shut. was my one opportunity? Yeah. If I'd played Churchill, would you be willing to play Triumph and Tragedy and Successors and Combat Commander and all that other stuff? No. Oh. Well, then I guess all I did was miss out on the game of Churchill, which is great, because Churchill's tedious and awful. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, at the end of the day, I think finding a balance is tricky, right? quote-unquote, properly utilizing a large collection is indeed very, very difficult, especially when, as you and I do, we're both very keen on playing new games. But I, I take solace in the fact that in a couple of... of when, when doing the prep work for uh, episodes of the podcast over the past couple of weeks, I've looked over and like, oh, all of these have been feature games over the past... How, you know, over, over our past 40-some episodes. And that's great. That means that we are still, while, while playing lots of new games, still finding time to return back to games that we know we like and are well accepted. I, I, I find that nice rather than unfortunate. And it also helps that over the course of our years in the hobby, I think we've both gotten much better at identifying what we like. And so as a result, uh, the rate of games that we actually go out and acquire that turn out to be stinkers is far lower because reading the rule book, sometimes even reading the back of the box or reading the blurb can give us a much better sense of what, whether or not we're going to like it. I really just think we need to work on, you know, talking about why we don't like a particular game. I really think we have a problem, you know, saying it properly and, and explaining why we don't like a particular game. Maybe, I think we're okay. too positive all the time. Maybe what we should do is we should set aside a time 
every week, maybe around this time, where we talk about games we don't like and why and games we like and why. How does that sound going? Sounds forward? fantastic. I'm in. Okay, that's a plan. So, but when are we going to find time to record the podcast then? Oh crap. Oh, that's that's going to be a problem. Okay, we're going to have to think about that. So that about closes up for th- uh, this episode of Sorry Wrong About Games. Thank you very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we possibly can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. Take care. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.